Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Paul. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. This week on the podcast, we spoke with Dr. John Neary, an internist at McMaster University. Dr. Neary was instrumental in submitting a motion that asked that the Royal College exam be waived for all trainees graduating in 2020, given the challenges that COVID-19 were presenting for the administration of the exam. We also talked about the recent decision of the Medical Council of Canada to eliminate the MCQE Part 2. Beyond these two very specific and controversial topics, we had a much deeper conversation with Dr. Neary about the nature of examinations in medical education. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Did studying for your Royal College exam make you a better physician? Email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Yeah, so I was born in London, Ontario. Um, I remember when I went to medical school just realizing how many people in medical school came from families that were medical families. Um, I was not from medical family, although I was from professional family. My father was a history professor at Western, still is. Um, I grew up in London. I did my undergraduate at Queen's University in pure mathematics, which was not intended as a course of pre-med study, but it turned out to be that way. I would say it was overvalued by medical schools when I applied after starting a master's degree and realizing I was not cut out to be a mathematician. And then I studied medicine at the University of Toronto, chose to come to a master for residency after having a really good experience interviewing here for CARMS, and really never looked back after landing at McMaster. I did the three years of core internal medicine, chose to do a fourth year in they called it general internal medicine, but that was before general internal medicine was recognized as a specialty. And I finished up at a time when there was a great need to expand general internal medicine services across Canada because of the rapidly rising number of hospital inpatients. So I was able to get a faculty position without needing to do a great deal of extra training. I joined the faculty in 2011, and I've had a few different leadership roles since then. I love it. That's fantastic. Well, Dr. Neary, we really wanted to chat with you today because, um, you know, you, you really um, kind of put your head out, uh, so to speak, or stuck your head out and put yourself out on a limb last year um, when you uh, circulated this petition and created this petition when, uh, the, Royal, when the Royal College exam essentially uh, decided to postpone uh, the Royal College exams, uh, and it was very uncertain at that time. And I know this intimately because I was one of the people who was affected directly by the Royal College exam being delayed. I was all set to write my exams, and then obviously the the little issue of the pandemic arose, and those exams got postponed. So can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, sort of what the situation was and, and how you got involved and, and what your petition was asking for? You know, it's hard... 15 months later to remember exactly what things were like 
in March 2020. But there was just this unprecedented sense that everything in the world that we take in for granted is changing so rapidly. And that all across society, conventional ways that things were done had to be it had to be changed radically overnight in the face of this you know, pandemic that was a threat to public health and to the function of society. And I think, you know, people like us in, you know, in the medical profession saw this I think even more acutely than most people because it you know, affected our work life as well as you know, the basic function of society. We were hearing stories from, overseas from countries that had been hit more quickly than we had about, um, you know, about retired nurses being called back to work, about pathologists being pressed into service in ICUs, sort of working under intensivists, you know, doing sort of simpler frontline tasks about respiratory therapy, students being rushed into practice and that sort of thing. There was a, there was a sense out there that a lot of rules for how things are done in peacetime, if you will, were being temporarily suspended or reconsidered in the face of this crisis. Um, I don't have a leadership role in residence education right now. Um, I used to have roles in that system. I stepped away from them um, a couple of years ago when I became division director of GIM here at McMaster. But I'm, you know, uh, I do a lot of clinical teaching, and I try to keep my ear to the ground on what as to what's going on. And there was certainly a sense from people I talked to and people who I followed on social media that the initial response from the Royal College to the pandemic last March um, didn't reflect either the gravity of the situation or the really pressing need to give these trainees a pathway to full certification on the timeline that the rest of the system required. So a lot of people finishing their final year of residency training who were due to finish their residencies in June required certification by the Royal College in order to get independent practice licenses, in order to get hospital-based physicians, in order to start the fellowships that they'd um, match to in July. And the notion that the examinations would be postponed indefinitely and that people wouldn't have a pathway to certification struck me as you know unfair to these can- exam candidates, but also um, inadequate in terms of the social need to get these young and highly skilled and energetic and motivated physicians into practice during a healthcare crisis. Now, the pandemic turned out, the first wave of the pandemic turned out to not be quite as much of a crisis in Canada as it looked like it might be, but that certainly was not apparent in March. Right. So, so to, again, to put it in context, the exams were. The written exam, I think, was about to be, uh, or we were about to write it, 
at the end of April, and that's when the Royal College said that um, they were going to postpone the exam. And there was no real kind of um, uh, idea at that point when it would be rescheduled. And so, yeah. you know, and I mean, for, for, for context, there. Yeah. I mean, if you look at you know some of the other health professions, I mean, the Canadian physiotherapy exam that was due to have been, I think it was due to happen last fall. The last time it happened was, I think, November 2019. There has been no opportunity for graduating Canadian physiotherapists to, to do their practical exam, to get an independent practice license since November 2019. So that's the kind of situation that was potentially on the table for physicians and surgeons finishing residencies in Canada. And for our non-Canadian listeners, the Royal College certification is sort of everything, right? Like there's no oversight necessarily from the provincial governing bodies in terms of, of who can practice. It's all about, like if you have your Royal College exam certification, that is what sort of certifies that you're allowed to practice. So that's a really interesting question, Amir. Um, and healthcare in Canada is regulated at the provincial or territorial level. We have 10 provinces and three territories. And I'm certainly not familiar with all the details of legislation and regulation in all 13, nor do I have any legal background whatsoever. But broadly speaking, the provincial uh, licensing authorities, which are often known as colleges, which have the legal authority to issue medical practice licenses in each of those jurisdictions, most or all of them are required by legislation or regulations issued by those provinces or territories to require certification by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada or the College of Family Physicians of Canada, which are the two um, sort of examination authorities, as well as licensure by the Medical College of Canada, which I think we'll get to later, in order for someone to be granted an independent practice license. So the requirement for certification by the Royal College is enshrined in law by many of the provinces. And in principle, the, the provinces and territories could have changed that legislation, those regulations, but that would have required you know, up to 13 legislatures to take on that work. And you know they had other things on their mind. Right. I mean, again, it's hard, hard. As you pointed out, it's very, very hard to remember what a crazy time that was back in, in April and March. And it's it's fun to listen to, you know, other podcasts and things like that that were date from that time because you realize how little we actually knew about COVID-19 even 15 months ago. We, I mean, the vaccine, right? Like we didn't even have, we didn't know when that was going to be. Uh, a we thing, didn't even know if it right? would work. We didn't, exactly. Like it's just, it's just a crazy period of time. So, so your petition, um, can you sort of spell out like what exactly you were asking the Royal College um, to do and, and what sort of motivated uh, or like what were you hearing from residents that, that made you want to uh, put together such a petition? I mean, I'm actually going to correct you on one point there, which I think is important in terms of anyone who is interested in doing this sort of advocacy work within the profession. I think it's an important, a critical point to understand. It wasn't a petition. It was a motion from members of the Royal College for a 
formal special meeting of the members to vote on resolutions that would require the Royal College as a corporate body to take certain actions. Um, and I think that's what that that's really key here because there have been a lot of petitions during this pandemic. And it's not that petitions have no power. I think if you step back from it, these organizations, the Royal College, the Medical Council of Canada, they exist and they have the power they have um, you know, in part for historical reasons, but you know, in part because they're seen to have a certain social legitimacy. Um, and I think, you know, if there was enough of a crisis of faith in those institutions, if they were seen to be illegitimate, then that could prompt changes in that legislation or regulation. And I think we've seen that more recently with the Medical College of Canada, where they were getting such harsh criticism over the uh, problems with the MCCQE2 last month that they had to back down. I think they were afraid of having their sort of enshrined legislative role removed. Um, you know, but that sort of, uh, sort of social political power is hard to exercise. But the Royal College in law is a member-driven organization. Everyone who is an FRCPC or FRCSC is a member of that institution. And the members ultimately have the authority over the function of that institution. Um, and the bylaws of the organization and provide a uh, pathway whereby a sufficient proportion of the members, I think it was 5%, could request a special meeting to vote on resolutions, and that meeting would have to be granted. Um, so the resolutions that we asked you to subscribe to called for the creation of a special one-time pathway to certification. And we laid that out in a, in a sort of cascade of options that would either include um, a sort of attestation from the training program that the candidate was ready to practice, you know, possibly based on a review of IDERS, plus a written examination, um, you know, or if the Royal College couldn't administer an online written examination quickly enough, just the attestation from the program. And by the way, I will freely admit here that when I wrote this, uh, you know, when I wrote these resolutions with input from a couple of people, we had completely forgotten about IMGs, um, which I'm quite ashamed of and just have to acknowledge. Um, and finally, if they couldn't, you know, if the Royal College couldn't pull off either of those thing, two things, then they would simply have to uh, certify everyone who was exam eligible based on exam eligibility alone. And we put that one in simply so that, you know, if, if, the, if we got enough signers on these resolutions and had the meeting and passed the resolutions, then they would have no way out. They wouldn't be able to say, well, it's you know, too late, we can't do this. You know, if they, if they couldn't do either of those two things, they'd have to certify everybody.
this motion, um, it quickly gained a lot of traction. Like I think, you know, it was very quick for you, for you to get the number of members to actually sign on, like enough members to actually sign on to make this uh, motion proceed. Is that is that right? Like I think it was yeah, like we, a couple of days. We got up to something like twenty five hundred within about a week or so, you know, and that was all based on sort of sharing on social media and you know people I imagine sharing through you know, email and such. There was no sort of organized campaign. Right. Um, you know, it was just a few of us you know, tweeting in our spare time and then you know, people amplifying that. Right. And it, it created a big conversation, I think. You know, one, obviously, about the, uh, the pandemic and how we were going to respond to that. And, and the spoiler alert here is that the, this did not pass, right? And uh, ultimately, uh, everyone did have to write their exams, although in a slightly different fashion. Like uh, I, I, none of us, I think, had to do an oral exam. We did, we did do our written exam eventually in September, uh, but not, not the oral exam. But, but I think the, the interesting part about this was, one, is sort of it raised all these questions about how we would respond to the pandemic and what the best way would be moving forward. I think the, the other equally interesting thing about it was sort of like the whole question around certification and the role of the exam in certification. You know, like a, a lot of people said, well, if, if residents had their fighters, fighters are the, the end of residency sort of evaluations that once your program director signs off on, theoretically, that means that you can go out and practice independently from their perspective. But, but a lot of program directors said those fighters don't really mean a whole lot and that they don't really, you know, they're, they're not enough of a check to say that someone um, is, is fit and qualified to go out into practice. So I, I'm curious about uh, your thoughts on both fronts. Like, what, what do you think that the, this whole kind of issue raised about perhaps how we should respond to the pandemic in this type of situation? And secondly, the nature of the exam itself and what it's trying to achieve? Thanks, Amir. Um, you know, I think the... the Timing of the pandemic was really important in terms of what we proposed in these resolutions. You know, I think if the pandemic had reached Canada in, say, December 2019, I, you know, I think we would have looked at this a lot differently. Because first of all, there would have been more time to find a solution to the examination problem. Um, but secondly, I think the you know the impact on trainees and on the examination process and the, the sort of precedent-setting value of it would have been very different. You know, we framed this very consciously as a call for a one-time pathway. And ironically, a year later, large parts of Canada were facing you know, larger waves of the pandemic, causing you know, at least as much dislocation in the healthcare system, you know, I'd say because of to poor governance and other domains have nothing to do with medical licensure. Um, but, you know, at the time, we saw this as a problem that was going to affect precisely one cohort. And this cohort of, I mean, I think one of the values of the certification exams is simply that they compel people to do the hard work of learning all the content that's going to be examined. And I remember feeling sort of knowledge-wise that I was a far better internist 
right at the time that I wrote my exams than I had a year prior. And that wasn't just because of spending an extra year of residency. It was because of all the deliberate studying. Um, I think that's broadly the case, that people study leading up to those exams in a way that they don't necessarily at another time in their career. But they've largely done that. Like, they've done a lot of that work by the time this was happening. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I didn't think that changing the exam format was going to, you know, change how that cohort would prepare. They'd done a lot of that preparation. And I didn't think it was going to set an important precedent, precedent for future cohorts because this was such a singular one-off situation. Um, you know, I don't think exit exams for medical and surgical specialties are an unreasonable step in education and certification. I think they're a very sensible step in peacetime. I think when you have this sort of unprecedented social crisis and you need this healthcare workforce to be doing their work um, and entering practice and not spending all their time, you know, brushing up the final minutia for their exams. It's appropriate to have different standards in that, you know, seemingly one-time situation than you would every other year. Um, and I think if you look at the history of assessment in the medical profession in Canada, it's changed over time as circumstances have changed. Um, the medical education was accelerated during the Second World War because there was a need to get people into practice in the forces. Um, I think there's a bit of an analogy there. So no, I don't think these exams are illegitimate in, in fundamentally. Um, you know, if the Royal College had been able to deliver an online written exam in May of 2020, I think that would have been, you know, a very sensible process. They couldn't do it. Um, when you get to the MCCQE2, that's a very different question. But I think that, I think you wanted to talk about that later. With regards to the fighters, Again, I'm not an expert on you know, every specialty and every training program in the country, but I think there is a general sense that fighters aren't a great assessment of readiness for practice. On the other hand, a lot of these exams have pass rates of well over 90%. My understanding is that many of the exceptions to that are surgical specialties. So I think this is probably a more complicated question in surgery than in many other specialties. You know, I, I really like so much of, of what you say, and I, I reflect and think back to my own exam, like yourself and like Amir, and you know, you're exactly dead on. I mean, I remember leading up to that exam and having you know a, a couple of weeks off just to sleep a bit and study and come off the call schedule. And certainly, there were um, you know faculty who are now my partners who were sort of critical of that, you know, each year. And I, I remember thinking that and having a little bit of that insight at the time, like the, the reason to do that has nothing to do with the content, because to your point, we'd all studied for, you know, a year and, and we'd done that work. It's just the, dr the drive, the motivator to consolidate that knowledge at a time, you know, in a, in, a, in a place that you would never do it without that, whatever you want to call it, fear, preparation, deadline, date, um, you know, and that's really how I personally look at the exam in its entirety. If there's actually no exam, and you can swear everyone to secrecy when they show up at the Royal College that, you know, there's no exam here. We just wanted you to study. You know, right. that would get a lot of the point accomplished. 
Not yeah. all of it. I mean, I, I think the I think you know again in peacetime, I think the exams do have an important role for you know identifying the odd person who's not safe to practice. But yeah, to- I think, totally. You know, I think there's a balance of benefits and harms here that swings in a different direction during a pandemic. Yeah, it's it's well said, and it's also interesting to contemplate. You know, your your mention about surgery, surgery and interventional fields in general. I think probably there there is something to that's maybe a little different or, or is worthy of, of deeper thought there. And you know, historically, you would always sort of hear people say, "Well, so and so would pass their exam, but boy, I wouldn't let them operate on me, or I wouldn't want them operating on my family." And you know, so there was always a disconnect between the didactic component, the knowledge component, and then the actual intraoperative technique as well as perioperative decision making. Um, and, and that that is interesting. And I would think that you know a five year evaluation by a reasonably uh, um, um, you know common uh, residency program would certainly handle or have a good sense of your technical and perioperative uh, decision making as opposed to the the content of the exam. So you're right. I mean, there is, it is a multifaceted question. I, I'm curious for, for you personally, you know, in your leadership uh, position in, in the GIM world, um, what were some of the, the, the individual sort of stresses um, that you saw amongst a, a lot of your, your trainees? Cause I, I'm sure they, they interacted with you in a, in a very special and probably different way than, than a, a lot of us who were, who were, or more quiet uh, and maybe inappropriately so um, certainly weren't leading the charge like 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 you I mean I think a lot of us listening that have passed our exams and been working for a while you, you try and think back but it's it's a little bit lost and and you know you try and have um, um, sympathy and empathy for that scenario which sounds horrific but I, I'm curious what sort of uh, uh, stresses that you know that, that you uh, help deal with and that you saw yourself that's an interesting question, Chad. I mean, pretty quickly once this got started, I was actually in touch with a diverse group of residents from across Canada, um, from many different specialties, you know, not predominantly internal medicine. In fact, there was a, if anything, the surgical specialties may have been overrepresented among the people who, you know, I heard from and spoke to a lot in the weeks after we sort of published these resolutions. Um, the internal medicine PGY-3s were actually in a less precarious position than most other spring examination candidates because this wasn't a final exam for them. This was a you know exam for their IM certification prior to their subspecialty residencies most of which are two years long. Um, and in fact, that sort of core IM exam used to happen in PGY-4, you know, in their first year of doing cardiology or endocrinology or whatever. And it was moved into the PGY-3 gear in part because, um, you know, the attention that they needed to pay to their studying during the PGY-4 year was thought by the subspecialty programs to really distract them from learning a subspecialty. Um, you know, and as well, they, I mean, it was often too late for them to apply a lot of that knowledge they were studying. So they moved into PGY-3 because, you know, 
Yeah, it it, uh, it was a stressful time. <laughs> As someone who who went through it, it definitely was uh, was a challenging thing to work through. And I think I think it was important for me to remember my struggles in some way were dwarfed by you know the the society at large and, and what everyone was going through. And I tried to keep that in mind. But it's certainly not easy when you're when you're about to start your fellowship or, you know, as many of my cohort were doing when you're about to start your practice and uh, and you have this exam moving, looming over your head. So it's not something that really should be underestimated. Um, so again, I think that's part of the reason why we were so grateful that you were, you know, more than anything, just the fact that you were willing to kind of just say and acknowledge that this was a tough thing that people were going through. I think that made, it, made a huge difference. And, uh, you know, rather than sort of everyone saying, well, you know, just deal with it. You know, we had to deal with SARS, and so you, you should be able to deal with this too. I think the fact that someone was willing to kind of just go out there and, and say, hey, you know, this is a very challenging situation. What about considering doing something like this? You know, it's funny you say that. I, I was a first-year med student during SARS. We lost our entire neurological clinical skills curriculum to SARS, and we never made it up. Like, we never made it up. Um. So maybe I remember that on some subconscious level. Um, you know, I want to follow up on something I think you said earlier, Amir, which was that you know eventually we got enough signatures for these resolutions, and that led to the special meeting, and the resolutions were voted down. You know, so the, the movement failed. Um, and it, I sort of bring that back to um, something I said earlier about you know the the tension between the sort of, you know, not quite legal, but, you know, very formal rules-based nature of these resolutions and the sort of more amorphous social pressure, you know, that is really all that's going on when people, you know, write petitions and that sort of thing, but was also part of this. Um, You know, we didn't win the victory we wanted to win here which was to certify people in the spring. Um, you know, I think the, um, I think some things were accomplished here. Um, you know, I think when, when we had enough signatures to, um, you know, call the special meeting, although in the end, the Royal College said there weren't quite enough signatures that some were invalid, but they said they'd call the meeting anyway. Um, you know, I think the, threat of the special meeting and of the members learning that they actually had this power, you know, that they could take control of the institution if they wanted to, helped push the Royal College to make some concessions, the big one of which was to cancel the oral exams and at least verbally commit to finishing the written exams in the autumn. And, I'm, you know, I don't know, but I think it's, you know, possible the written exams wouldn't have been finished in the autumn if they hadn't been so frightened of this movement in the spring. I don't know that. If you look what happened at the MCC and say the physiotherapists, you know, it's not clear that certification exams were necessarily going to happen in the autumn of 2020. Um, You know, I think the other thing that I'm gratified by out of what happened last spring is that I think there's a I think a lot of the graduating residents and other exam candidates learned 
a lot of lessons about how our regulatory system works. And I hope in the say, decade to come are going to be you know, pushing for change in these institutions. So they'll be, you know, more responsive to social needs and you know, the needs of trainees, both in peacetime and the next time there's this sort of singular event. Yeah. And, and you know, to be clear, I, I don't envy the, the, the position that the Royal College is, was in. You know, I, this is not certainly not something that anybody, I think, was prepared to handle or to know what to do. Uh, but I, I echo what you're saying that I think I think it's on all of us also to now realize that if we want things to change, then, you know, you, you, you do probably have the power to do so, but you have to be able to become involved just like you did and actually put yourself out there and, and try to do something if you want things to change in a, in a substantial way. Um, you know, you mentioned the the we've kind of been dancing around the idea uh, or the, the topic of the MCQE part two. Um, so just for our listeners, so that we, you know, before we kind of dive into that, can you explain what the uh, MCQE2 is and um, kind of how that fits into our medical training? For sure, Amir, and I'm going to need to give a bit of a history lesson here, although I'm no historian, but my dad's a historian, so I kind of grew up with this stuff. Um, so my understanding of the history here is that until about 1911, 1912, Every province had its own medical licensing exam. And it, these were just general medical licensing exams. There was, there, we didn't have the same concept of specialization. You, know, you, you were licensed as a physician. That was it. Um, and if you wanted to, you know, if you practice in one province and wanted to practice in another, in another you had to go and do their exam, um, which made things you know, very difficult for practitioners. Um, it's still the, still that way, that case, or it's still that way um, with the law. Like every province has its own bar exams. You, know, you can't just move from one province to another and apply for a license. Um, the Medical Council of Canada was established at that time to create a national licensing exam that all the provinces would subscribe to. And that was a very worthy endeavor at that time. And that's the exam that's now known as the MCCQE-1. It's a written exam and it's online, but it's, you know, it's, it's not an OSCE that people do right after finishing medical school. Now that exam used to get you a general license. In about 1929, the Royal College was brought into existence to certify people for specialty practice. The number of specialties grew over time. And then the College of Family Physicians came into existence in the 1980s or 1990s. And at that time, the general practice license was abolished except for existing practitioners. Um, so now in order to practice medicine in Canada as a new entrant, you need to be certified in either one of the Royal College specialties or in family medicine, which is also a specialty which is regulated by the College of Family Physicians of Canada. There is no general practice license. Before that had happened, at some point, the Medical Council of Canada had brought in an oral exam, or OSCE, called the MCCQE2, 
which people had to do after finishing their one-year rotating internship in order to get that general practice license. So that was the sort of you know exiting internship exam that would let you practice medicine if you weren't then going to specialize. When the general practice license was abolished, they kept the MCCQE too. And when the rotating internship was gradually abolished and converted into, you know, the first year of whatever your residency program is, the, the structure of medical education moved farther and farther away from this sort of generalism at the beginning of residency, which again was then called internship, to a sort of direct entry into your specialty practice. But this exam persisted in the second year of residency. And it has less and less connection to what people are doing at that time. Um, you have people who, again, are going to be pathologists and they're, you know, in their second year of residency, all they're doing is pathology. And they have to spend a weekend doing this exam that's about obstetrics and pediatrics and internal medicine and population health. And it doesn't get you anything except that you need to pass it in order to get your practice license when you finish your residency. So it used to get you a general practice license and now it gets you nothing. Um, you know, I think to have that sort of OSCE at the end of medical school would have a certain legitimacy, but to have it in second year residency just makes no sense. And everyone knows it makes no sense. Um, and so when the Medical Council of Canada was having trouble administering this exam, the discourse that was going on within the profession, which I wasn't leading. I mean, I had, you know, I weighed in from time to time, but I wasn't, you know, a leader in that discourse. It was different from what was going on with the Royal College. You know, I think the, even the most harsh critics of the Royal College, and I wasn't one of their most harsh critics, you know, would generally say things like, you know, this exam format needs, you know, needs to change and if you can't administer it quickly during this unprecedented pandemic then you need to waive it for this cohort and let them through there you were saying things like this exam is illegitimate it has no necessary role in education and certification but people were saying that about the mccqe too they were saying this is an exam that exists for historical reasons it has no legitimacy in our education process. And a lot of you are going further and saying this is purely a money grab. Right. You know, like um, I think we all remember doing the LMCC part two and, you know, having to prepare for, for things we would never have to do ever again. You know, uh, you know, like I remember my scenario being something like, you know, advising uh, your, uh, the mom of a child who you think is the child is not exercising enough or something like that. And really that the, the exam was, it seemed a lot more to be almost about like knowing how to do these specific kind of communication techniques, you know, that, that you could be empathetic and talk to a patient uh, well, than then really about any kind of medical knowledge per se. I mean, I think there were a few stations that, that did involve some basic, kind of medical knowledge that you need to know how to treat a you know a sick patient but you know a lot a, a, certainly a number of stations seem to be more about communication than anything else so i don't think that's an accident i think they've you know very consciously in recent years tried to reframe this as being 
an exam on the non-medical expert PanMeds roles, um, you know, to sort of frame it as being these general competencies that are unrelated to what your specialty is. But, you know, first of all, they haven't exactly done that because it does still test you on, you know, all these different areas of specialty practice that, you know, no one except family medicine will be doing all of them. And secondly, like, you know, you can't actually test people on those things usefully in a sort of generalist way when they're all in their specialties. You know, like you can't test pathologists on their communication skills in, you know, scenarios of nothing to do with pathology. It makes no sense. You know, I guess, I guess the, the question or the thing that people would always bring up, I mean, it's sort of a moot point now in that uh, the MCC has canceled the exam or, or gotten rid of it. But, you know, I think the, the perennial thing was that it was, it was seen as a way to sort of ensure that there was a minimum bar for uh, Canadian physicians in terms of how they would interact and how they would take care of patients. And I think many people saw this as a way to make sure that particularly IMGs were meeting a certain minimum standard. What? How do you sort of think about that? You know, so those are two interesting and I think you know, rather different questions in the air. I mean, I, I was thinking about this a bit last week in preparation for this conversation. And, you know, I was thinking about the way that medical, you know, when I say medical, of course, I also mean surgical, but, you know, medical broadly, education in Canada is structured. You know, if you think about other professions, they're organized very differently from ours. Um, you know, take dentistry, for example. I mean, you don't do dental school and then dental residency. A few people do. You know, you, you know, if you want to be a periodontist or a prosthodontist, you know, you do extra training, but, you know, you'd go to dental school and you get qualified as a dentist. There's no sort of necessary reapplication in the middle of that training. Medicine's very unusual in that you do this three or four year program that gets you a degree but no practice license. And then as a mandatory step, you have to then match to a second phase of training in one or another specialty, which only then gets you a practice license for anything at all. And that's not the way medicine was historically. It's the way it is now. I mean, you know, I guess, you know, for to like to take that, analogy, if you will, to its breaking point. I think if you were, you know, if you were going to completely tear down the, the structures of our profession and the structures of, of how we educate people and rebuild them from the ground up with no reference to what we've had historically, I'm not sure you'd start with everyone in the scope of what we now consider medicine and surgery doing four years together and then branching off. You know, I could see a system where you know, after an undergraduate degree or, you know, a sort of some sort of, you know, one year like preparatory health sciences professional um, you know, starter year, people might be studying immediately to be psychiatrists or orthopedic surgeons or family physicians. And there would be no question about this sort of generalist exam at this somewhat artificial cut point in training. You know, I think, I mean, with this, with the structure we have, I'm not saying that would be better. I'm saying it's 
plausible that it could work that way. And when you look at, you know, newer health, like health professions that have more recently become recognized by the state, like midwifery, you know, they have a singular uh, organization of their education. They don't have this cut point in the middle. I think with the organization we have right now, if, if, you know, if the MCCQE or an exam of that nature is important for assessing some general safety to practice or generalist competencies or non-medical expert competencies, it should happen after med school, not in PGY2. That's a simple answer. Like right after med school is a sensible time to assess those things. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. You know, it's interesting to reflect a little bit based on what you've said about the American Board of Surgery and look at the training paradigm and how it's shifting. You know, the, the traditional five-year surgical residency which, you know, then you do your American boards or your Royal College exam and go on to fellowships, as you know, from one to three years beyond that, uh, is in the process of really changing. So in the U.S., the American board's plan is for you to do a, a general surgical experience that's three years, at which point yeah. you then want to enter one of five pathways. It could be HPB and oncology. It could be trauma and acute care surgery and, and so on. And there, there certainly is a lot of and that, that, that does make a lot of sense to me on a lot of different levels. Yeah. We see it in medicine too, you know, where, I mean, neurology used to be an internal medicine subspecialty. It spun off at some point. You know, they no longer do their IM boards. And, you know, I don't think anyone's questioning why neurologists no longer do their IM boards. I presume that vascular surgery no longer does the general surgery boards because it's now a direct entry residency. You know, so these, like, Changes of this nature have been made in different in different places from time to time. What I'd be really interested in, in asking about is if you if you had to be the one kind of redesigning things and and coming up with a system for how to deliver exams that really actually tested people's competencies. Let's say starting at the medical school level, you know, how would you sort of design that? You know, and in particular, what I'm thinking about is, do we even need a national uh, examination across Canada that tests all medical schools, um, given that most medical schools are, are pretty, you know, pretty uh, equal. And then, you know, the second thing is about the, you know, this, the specialty exams. And as particularly, I'm thinking for the perhaps the more procedural ones. How do we make sure that uh, we continue to make really strong candidates kind of after thinking about all the, the questions around fighters and, and the, the legitimacy of evaluations uh, to begin with. If you were going to set any sort of generalist examination to test the medical school examination broad, uh, curriculum broadly, I think the logical time to do that is around the end of medical school and not during residency education. I think that's the deepest problem with the NCCQE too. That being said, I'm, I'm not convinced we actually need that within the Canadian system right now. Uh, the pass rates of the MCCQ1 and 2 for CMGs are both very high. I, I don't think it's clear that you know, failure on those examinations um, you know, leads to intervention, nor do I think that the studying people do before those examinations is really important for their long-term skills development. It's not at all comparable to how people study for the Royal College exams. And I think in assessing the need for any of these sorts of examinations, 
you need to look at the benefits and the harms and the harms of imposing another examination on trainees, both in terms of the financial cost, the effort it entails, the, the psychological stress during very demanding training programs. Um, these things aren't trivial. Um, you know, I think the, you know, I think about this um, earlier, but the Royal College exams, I forgot how this came to my mind, but you know, I've thought for a while when, when I've helped with OSCE development for you know, our IM program at McMaster, you know, why do you still have these conventions like exams are closed book? You know, why can't you look something up during your exam if you want to? I mean, it will take time. That might not look good, but you know, if you want to look something up, why can't you? I mean, that's the world we live in. Um, but even you know, beyond that, I mean, the nature of these oral examinations where you're sort of doing one thing at a time, it really doesn't replicate the nature of medical and surgical practice. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that can maybe optimize about exam technique, but I think the structure of a you know, didactic written exam plus some sort of practical exam for exit from a specialty residency is fundamentally legitimate. You know, I think the, you asked earlier about competency-based medical education. And again, I'm, you know, I'm no surgeon, no expert in surgical education. I think it's, I think it is a more useful construct in surgery than in other branches of medicine. You know, I did do a EPA the other day for a fellow who worked with me for six months in clinic, and the competency was managing a GIM clinic. And I'm like, come on, guys, this is an ITER. This isn't an EPA. You know, evaluating how you ran this clinic for six months, that's an ITER. I, I didn't have an existential problem with the Royal College exams. You know, I thought there was an intervention that was needed last spring. I'm glad the MCCQE2 has been eliminated because I think it was a very silly thing to put people through in PGY2. Um, and if they, you know, if this leads them to try to improve the MCCQE1, well, you know, we'll see what that looks like. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at camjsurge. Thanks again.